Uh, good to see those of you who are behind that red light that I'm looking at, who are out there on uh, Facebook Live and YouTube. Uh, good to have all of you worshiping with us. And as Sue said, it is, it's good to see, you know, it's good to see more people here, but so everyone's still socially distanced and everyone has their masks on. We actually, this week, we had our capacity increase a little bit. So Murphy said, uh, Governor Murphy, uh, you know, <laughs> I just call him Murph. Uh, no, <laughs> but uh, he said, he said that, uh, that, that churches can go now to 50% capacity, provided everyone still stays six feet apart and whatever. And so we've got, uh, so, so we're able to kind of up a little bit, you know, what we have. And, and uh, it's, you know, as we see more people get vaccinated and, and as we move forward, there's hope that we can, we can kind of get back to normal little by little as we go here while we, we continue to be careful and we continue to, to just respect what it is we're dealing with because because we as a church, we know about as well as anyone how real this is and how much we do not want to, uh, we, we want to be careful. Um, so, so we're in the midst of a series here. Uh, it is called Keeping It Simple. And, uh, and so the, the premise of this, of this series has been that I think that we're making life more complicated than it needs to get. So basically, like my, my big picture idea here is that God has a lot to say about life. God has a lot to say about how life should work. God is the one who designed it. He's the one who created it. And we as a culture, we're kind of more and more saying, God, we don't really care so much what you have to say. We're going to kind of figure out things on our own. And I think as we do that, we're making life more complicated. Like life is just getting more difficult. I started this series a few weeks ago talking about the lies that I think Satan wants us to, has been trying to get human beings to believe for as long as human beings have been around. Uh, last week, I talked about, uh, about singleness and, and simplifying singleness. Some of the, maybe some of the lies that we believe about singleness, some of the things that God says about being single. And, and next week, we're going to talk about, uh, difficult relationships, toxic relationships. It almost seems like there's more and more toxic relationships. I'll probably get into a little bit why I think that is. I think part of it is that with, with social media, people are just so used to kind of blasting people on social media that it's kind of carrying over into real life now too. And, and so how do we, how do we navigate that? What does God have to say to us about that? Uh, a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about, about, um, how to, uh, simplify our relationship with money. And this week, we're going to talk about marriage. Now, now, last week, I talked about singleness. And um, I haven't been single for almost 30 years. So I had to go back. I had, to, I had to, like, remember. I had to go way back to remember that. Marriage, I feel like I've got, a, you know, a little bit more to kind of work with here because I've been married for quite a while. I have a picture here of some new bedding that Norman and I got. Any, any guys, anybody can relate to that or is it just me? I don't know. Now, now you see, here's the thing. Here's the thing that makes, that makes I've, marriage is complicated. So, so I found this picture a few weeks ago and I thought it was funny. So I texted it to my wife because I, I believe this is my reality. I believe I've, I've had plenty of nights where I've woken up with just the sheet and I'm there like shivering with just the sheet and my wife's like cocooned in like three comforters. And I'm just like, you know, and so I said her this that she said, yeah, that's absolutely true, but it's the reverse. So she thinks I'm the bed hog. She thinks I'm the one who steals the blankets. And so it just it shows how complicated it is. We can't even agree as to, as to who's, the, who's the bed hog in our relationship. Uh, Albert Einstein had this quote, which I thought was kind of a cool quote, very true. He said, men marry women 
with the hope they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they're both disappointed, I think. <laughs> Just, that's, you know, Albert Einstein, he's a smart guy, so he was, he was right about that. But, but the reality is, is I think that there are things that make marriage more difficult, that makes marriage, you know, kind of makes things more complicated. Uh, I think one is there's more financial pressure. Like, who here feels that it's like, it's financially, it's harder than it was, say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago? You know, the people talk about the shrinking middle class, and that's actually a thing. So there's been, there's been 2% inflation every single year for the last 20 years. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but the problem is, is our income has not matched the increase of inflation. So, for example, 20 years ago, if you made $50,000 a year, you would now need $76,000 a year in salary to have the same buying power that you had 20 years ago with $50,000. And, and so most people, their, their salaries have not matched inflation. And so there's more stress. It's more difficult. And, and so, you know, marriages now both, you know, especially around here, both couples probably need to work and there's just more stress and there's less time to spend together, less time to relate, just makes it more difficult. I think that raising kids is a little bit more complicated these days. I think one of the reasons it's more complicated is because, and I probably need to do a series on this at some point soon, uh, because our, I just think our culture is just making it harder and harder for us to raise kids. You know, in so many ways, the values of our culture are just constantly coming up and they're in conflict with the, with Christian values, with biblical values that we want to live our life according to, that we want to pass on to our kids. And so our kids are kind of getting this full court press from the culture, uh, when it comes to like, you know, what they're seeing on social media, the shows that they're watching on Netflix, things that they're hearing from their peers. And I think it, it makes it it makes it a lot harder. Uh, and, and it makes it harder, I think, to raise kids because our kids are struggling more than, more than they have been in previous generations. One out of every three teenager will be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. One out of three. That doesn't mean one out of three will have a little bit of anxiety. One out of three, uh, 13 to 18 year olds, will be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And so I think that makes it harder. And then, you know, I don't need to remind us, I feel like I've been talking about it so much. This past year, you know, I mean, the stress, the everything that we've dealt with, with, from the pandemic to the political stuff, to the racial reckoning stuff, to all of it has just, I think it all has kind of piled up to, to make marriages harder, you know, to really make it a little bit more difficult for us to, for us to navigate our marriages. And so our theme verse for this whole series is Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. And it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, what Paul is saying here to the Romans is he's saying, listen, what God had like wisdom for us and we decided we didn't need that wisdom. And so we said, God, we've got this. We're going we're gonna to go on our own. 
And, uh, and so in doing that, you know, Paul says, our foolish hearts became darkened and claiming to be wise, we became fools. And then things just kind of go from bad to worse. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creative things rather than the creator who was forever praised. Amen. So we've been really focusing on that line about, about exchanging God's truth for a lie. And so we've been trying to find what are the lies, exposing the lies that, that can just make life harder for us, that can make life more complicated. Now, now when it comes to marriage, as I said, I've got, I've got experience with this. I've been, I've been married for almost 30 years. What I can say for sure, and I think Norma would 100% agree with me, uh, marriage is really hard. Like, it's hard. Marriage is not for the faint of heart. Marriage is difficult. But we would also say 100% that marriage is wonderful, that it is hard, it is challenging, it is difficult, but what you get back can be so much more than what you give. And the other thing that we would say 100% for sure is that there is no way, Norma and I would not have made it if we weren't trying to build our marriage on the truth of God's word. There's just no way, no way we would have made it if it wasn't for God's grace, if it wasn't for his strength, if it wasn't for his mercy. And so what we're going to do today is we are going to look at the longest passage in the Bible dealing with marriage. It's taken from uh, Ephesians. It's written by the Apostle Paul, the same guy who wrote that passage we read uh, in Romans chapter 1. And it's, it's the longest passage, and we're going to do kind of a deep dive into this passage. You know, sometimes I'll preach like thematically, and we'll kind of look at a bunch of different verses dealing with a the theme. We're going to do a pretty deep dive into this passage uh, this morning, and so it would be a good time for you to take out your app, for you to look at the message notes that we uh, that I put together for this, has the fill in the blanks, has the Bible verses, has some quotes, has, I think, things that'll kind of help you to kind of follow along. So let's read Ephesians 5. I'm, I'll read the whole thing first, and then we'll just kind of work our way through. So verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are the members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So the first thing that I want to talk about is the structure of marriage. Okay, the structure of marriage, because there's the verse here uh, uh, where it says, like right off the, right off the bat, wives submit to your husbands. Now that is a verse that I think has caused some problems through the years. That is a verse. I think somebody said amen. That is a verse. See, here's the thing. It sounds like what, what Paul is saying here is like the husband's the boss, 
right? And so if there's a disagreement, if there's a disagreement, if the wife and the husband are going back, like, you guys, some of you are reading that passage, you're like, is Phil going to go there? Is he going to, are we just going to kind of like go over this to get to like love? And this and I'll get to the love part, but let's deal with this. Because it's caused, it's caused some issues. People, you know, the, the idea has been like, well, if the husband and the wife are disagreeing about something, well, at the end of the day, the decision belongs to the husband due to his gender. That seems to be what this is, seems to be what this is saying. And, and it's kind of like that the husband is the boss. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, you're a Christian, so you're supposed to be a nice boss. You're supposed to be a loving boss. You're supposed to be a kind boss. But at the end of the day, you're the boss. Now, now I believe that coming away from this passage with that interpretation, with that understanding is a misreading of the passage. Remember I said a couple of weeks ago that the Bible is written for us but it's not written to us. And this is a really good example of that because there are things that the Ephesians heard, that anyone who lived in the Greco-Roman world when Paul was writing this, there were things that they understood that Paul absolutely is aware of. He's absolutely framing everything he's saying with this understanding. And so we don't have the same understanding that they had, that we don't hear it the same way. And so in the Greco-Roman world, There was this thing, and just stay with me here for a minute, because I think it's important. There was this thing called household codes. Household codes were the basis for Greco-Roman society, because what the Romans valued more than anything is they valued order. And so they thought it was incredibly important for a society to function well, a society had to run according to a hierarchical structure, which was found in the household code, and it's how things should work. And an ordered society was a society where everybody knew their place, and according to the Romans, the husband's place was at the top of the hierarchy, and the husband was supposed to rule or govern his household. He was the dictator. He was the king of his castle. Now, Paul is writing to people who lived in this world. And so they understood. So when Paul starts talking about the duties of husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and servants, they were like, oh, yeah, household codes. We know that. Yeah, we've, we've lived with household codes. We know all about household codes. Paul, tell us something we don't know. But what he does, though, is he uses the same words that they're comfortable with, but he goes in a totally different direction. He completely subverts their understanding because what they would have heard is, husbands, you're the head. And so therefore, you need to govern your wife. You need to rule your wife. You need to call the shots. But Paul didn't say that. What Paul said, all right, listen, we'll talk about household codes. We'll talk about hierarchy. But, but husbands, three times, he says, you are to love your wife. Love your, verse 25, love your wife just as Christ loved the church. Verse 28, uh, love your wives as your own bodies. Verse 33, love his wife as he loves himself. So Paul is taking this, this whole hierarchical concept and he's subverting it. He's completely flipping it on them. He's saying, listen, you guys see this as like who's powerful and who gets to be domineering. Let me give you a whole other way to read this. Who, that, that whatever position you have, whatever authority you have, you are to use that authority to love. That is the way of the kingdom. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of the cross. So you don't realize kind of how revolutionary this is. One other thing that, that you need to understand that this is not at all Paul saying, you know, like some people will be like, you know, that what this means is that, you 
you know, a husband can just kind of sit there watching the football game and say, woman, get me my chicken pot pie and my Pabst Blue Ribbon. That is not at all what this is saying. That's nowhere. Paul is flipping it around. He's, in, he's intentionally trying to say the opposite of that. So another point is where it says in Ephesians 5.22, that look, okay, yeah, so you see the structure of marriage. It starts off, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the very next verse is that 522, where in the NIV it says, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. So it's like mutual submission, but then wives, you need to submit. That's not how it works in the Greek. That's not what's happening in the Greek. The Greek actually, what it says is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. And then it goes on and it talks about husbands loving your wife the way Christ loved to the church, loved the church. So Paul introduces this radical concept right there in verse one, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. Mutual submission. This was radical. This was not seen anywhere else. You can't find this in any, you know, Greek writings, in any Romans writing. You can't find it anywhere else other than in Christianity, in Paul's writings, in the, in the, in the, the, the teachings of Jesus. And what he's saying is radical. See, he's actually, he's throwing down the gauntlet to Roman society, which is all about hierarchy, which is all about power, which is all about who has the power, who's yielding the power, who's getting crushed by the power. And he's saying the way of the kingdom is absolutely different. It is a 180. It is the way of the kingdom is mutual submission. The way of the kingdom, the way of the cross is not power over. It's not we have power over you, and so therefore we're going to yield it. It's that whatever authority we have, we're going to use that authority to love sacrificially. So the way that so many Christian men have used this verse to be unloving towards their wife is the total opposite of what Paul was trying to say. You know, it was, it's completely missing the point of what Paul is trying to say. And practically, I would say for Norma and I, right, if we offer any advice, one of the things that has made our marriage work for 30 years is we have practiced mutual submission in our marriage. So, so we talk about everything. I mean, we, you know, we talk about purchases. We talk about where we're going to go on vacation. We talk about how we're going to pay for our kids' college. We talk about, you know, uh, we talk about all sorts of, all sorts of different things. Like everything is absolutely on the table. And, and the thing is, if you know Norma and I, uh, we both have opinions and we're both talkers. And I think we both kind of have this idea that beyond just trying having this epic battle for who's going to get the, the comforter at night, uh, we also, we kind of have this idea, I think, that, that we can convince the other person we're right if we just keep talking. And so, so, but somehow we kind of navigate this. We kind of make it work. You know, we figure it out. But the one thing that we don't do, that we've never done, is have one person decide something significant that affects both of our lives because we're in this together. Because we believe that it's about mutual submission. As we submit to Christ, we're mutually submitted to one another, and we're partnering, and we're loving, and we're serving each other together. And so I think before I get into uh, the purpose of marriage, I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of marriage and what I would say has been a, a, a kind of um, costly misinterpretation of what this, what this passage is saying. Now, this, this passage also speaks to the purpose of marriage. 
So I have four purposes, I think, four purposes of marriage that this passage speaks to. The first is that uh, we, it, real simple, it teaches us to love. Marriage is, the, one of the purposes of marriage is to teach us to love. Now, six times this passage says, as husband and wife, we are to love one another. And so, listen, the reality is we are all born pretty selfish, right? You do not have to teach a baby how to say mine. You know, like, like no parent has ever been like, okay, come on, you can say it. Mine, mine, mine. Good, Johnny, you did it. No, they, they come up with that word on their own, right? They get that word pretty quick. You don't have to teach a toddler how to take a toy that they want from the, from the hands of another toddler. They figure that out on their own. And so much of our life, so much of what God is doing is he's trying to take us from these selfish, singular beings and trying to teach us how to live in community, how to get us to collaborate. And there's a lot of ways that God does that, right? I mean, so much of our life is learning to kind of go from that singular to, to, to oneness, to collaboration. And that is especially true in marriage. Marriage is kind of, you know, heavy resistance training. It's like CrossFit to learn how to love. Because the kind of love that the Bible talks about that we need in a marriage is kind of like self-sacrificial, cross-shaped love, this agape love. It is not natural, right? Lust is natural. Uh, passion is natural. Even romance is natural. But this kind of agape love, this self-sacrificial love, it is not natural. And God doesn't say to us, you know, I just want you to love people in general, just like love the whole world. He says, no, I want you to love the people around you. I want you to love your brother. I want you to love your sister. And in the marriage relationship, we have the privilege of having this real life person who lives with us, who, you know, who, who deals with us and we deal with every single day in so many different ways. And God says, love this person, that we are to give up our life for one another. Another, Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so the thing about marriage is we have an opportunity to lay our life down a little bit every single day. You know, God doesn't say, all right, I want you to give your spouse a million dollars. And then like one time for all, you give your spouse a million dollars. God says, you know, just kind of go with this, this illustration. Give your spouse a million dollars, but I want you to do it a dollar at a time. And so every single day, you know what? You have, you know, it's, it's late at night. The dishes aren't done. Your spouse is tired. You're tired. You say, don't worry, honey, I'll, I'll do the dishes. And you give a dollar. Or you've got to, you know, you've got to take the dog to the vet. And, uh, and, and your spouse has a work conflict. You've got a work conflict. And you say, hey, I'll work things out on my end. I'll, I'll take the dog to the vet. You know, and you give another dollar. Or, you, you know, you're watching the game. You're watching the fourth quarter of the Knicks game. And you're watching Derrick Rose and Emmanuel Quickly and the magic that they're working together. But that's another, sorry. And, uh, no, am I the only Knicks fan in this place? Are there any, I just got to know because I may have to resign. Are there any other Knicks fans here? Okay, a couple. All right. One. So we, we'll talk after the, after the service. But you're watching, you're watching the magic, and, uh, but your wife wants to talk to you. And, uh, you know, and so you... you Turn off the TV because you say, hey, you know what? There's something important here. We got we to gotta have a conversation. You give another dollar. See, I think that's the thing about marriage. It's this, this, this mutual submission, this mutual love over and over in, in like the little details of life, not in some abstract general way, but in the real world. And something else that I think is really interesting about marriage is it gives us an opportunity 
to practice the great commandment. It gives us an opportunity to practice the great commandment. It says, it says in Ephesians 5.33, Paul says, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So remember when Jesus had somebody come say, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is love your neighbor as yourself. That's the golden rule. That's the greatest commandment. And I've met people, you know, I'm sure you've met people who have said, yeah, you know, I don't need like religion. I just live by the golden rule. I, I, I just treat everyone, you know, I love everyone the way I love myself. And you just like, you want to say to the person who says that, like, really? Like everybody. Like you honestly, you think like you are perfectly living according to this code. Like you love everyone the way you love yourself. Like the difficult coworkers, the people who cut you off on Route 4, like everyone? Like you really, you do this every single day? Are there statues of you in a park? You know, I do that. Are there holidays? Like you have your own holiday, like that we, you know, we, that's a bank holiday that we take off. You know, if you like think about it, who do we actually treat with the same care and concern that we treat ourselves? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that we don't strive to love our neighbor as ourselves. But who do we actually, in a relationship, like it really, like we, we actually do this, right? Where, for example, like I work and I have money in a bank account and I say, hey, you can have access to all the money that's in my bank account. Actually, we'll have a joint bank account and like you can like take it or you can use my car. And if you use my car and you have an accident, um, I will contact the insurance company. I will get it towed. I will pay the deductible. I will basically treat this accident as if I was driving the car. Like, I, I'll just take care of it. I'll do it. Who else? Who else? Like, what other relationships do you say, hey, when it comes to all of the big decisions in my life, like where I'm going to live, whether or not I'm going to have children, um, whether or not I'm going to take that promotion because, because, you know, there can be other responsibilities and things got to really think through if that's going to work out. Uh, what kind of values we're going to teach our children, what church we're going to go to. What, I mean, what other relationship do you have where you invite someone to kind of, you give them access to everything, every big decision that you make, everything that you do. And I think that God created marriage. One of the reasons was to be a place, one of the, kind of a rare place, where we really actually do have the opportunity to like love our neighbor as ourself, like down to the bone. An opportunity for us to grow. Like and we try with everyone to love our neighbor as ourself, but to have a successful marriage, you've really got to do it. And so I think that's one of the purposes of marriage. A third purpose is to teach us holiness. To teach us holiness for us to grow spiritually. Paul says, Ephesians 5.26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Now, I've done a lot of uh, marriages through the years. I've performed a lot of marriages. I have done a lot of premarital counseling. And every now and then you get this young couple and they just, it's like they have no idea what they're in for. Like they just don't, they're just clueless, you know, and it was just like, oh, I'm not going to have to change so much. You know, I've got a little bit, maybe a little bit here, a little bit there, take off a little bit, a little bit off the top, but I don't have to make any huge drastic changes. And you just think like you are in for a rude awakening because here's the reality with marriage. It will force you 
to face some of the character issues and deficiencies in your life like nothing else. Like marriage, the reason marriage is hard is that it's like a mirror is held up where you have to face your brokenness. You have to face your insecurities. You have to face your selfishness. Now think about it. If you, if you, let's say you live by yourself. You know, you don't have any roommates. You just live by yourself. You can kind of live however you want to live. I mean, if you want to be a slob, you can be a slob. You can just like let the dishes kind of pile up really, really high. Nobody's going to say anything. You know, unless it gets so bad that like your neighbor calls the health inspector, right? But, but otherwise, nobody's going to know. You could like every night, you could just kind of sit in your underwear and watch Netflix and eat a gallon of Haagen-Dazs. You can, you know, pay your bills when you feel like it and incur late fees on all of them and have your credit score go down. But you see, when you're married, like you not only have God watching all the time, you have another set of eyes watching. You have a spouse. You have everything, everything that you're doing affects them. And so they're going to have an opinion about everything that you're saying and everything that you're doing. Gary Thomas in the book Sacred Marriage, he said this. I put the quote up because it's such a good quote. I hope, I think I put it in your notes. I hope I did. It's the purpose of marriage to always, if the purpose of marriage is to always be happy, then your only option is basically to get a new marriage every two or three years, which is what some people do. But if a main purpose of marriage is to make us holy, then God uses our spouses to operate on us, often without anesthesia. Any married people, can I get an amen from anybody that's like, yep, that's operate on us without anesthesia. Marriage forces us to deal honestly with our character flaws. It holds up a mirror to us to show us how petty we often are, how impatient, selfish, self-consumed we can often be. God uses marriage to teach us holiness. Now, let me just kind of say this as a little bit of an aside. This is why it is not a good idea to live together. Now, listen, if there's anybody that I'm talking to today, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure I'm going to be talking to people who are living together. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm not trying to shame you. But I'm saying, I think, I don't think it's a good idea. I think it's one of those things where it's like, like we saw in Romans chapter one, where it's like the world kind of says, oh, it makes sense. You know, marriage, what is marriage? It's just a piece of paper and we don't really need that. And that doesn't, that doesn't matter. But, but I think maybe it does. I think maybe it does matter because see, here's the thing. Marriage is raw. So you're living with someone 24 seven and they're going to see all of the, all of your warts. They're going to see all of your vulnerabilities. They're going to see all of your stuff, all the stuff that you try to hide from everyone else. There's no way that you're going to be able to hide that from your spouse. It's just out there. But see, the thing that can make marriage in something that causes growth in your life is that you're dealing, your stuff is out there, your spouse's stuff is out there, but it's out there with the protection of a radical commitment. And this is really like a radical commitment. Think about your wedding vows. Like you said some crazy stuff. I mean, seriously, like, like vows, right? You promised to love, honor, and cherish sickness and in health, you know, goodness and like till death do you part. Like that's crazy. You made that promise before God, before your family, before your friends. Like you made this radical commitment and so did your spouse. And that's the safety. That's what's needed for the surgery without anesthesia that happens in a wedding, I mean, in a, in a marriage. That's how you're able to grow. And when you live together, you have all of the rawness. You have all of the vulnerabilities. You have all of the surgery without anesthesia, but you don't have that commitment. 
And I think it makes a huge difference. That's why even though like, the, you know, the world's wisdom says, well, you know what? You got you to gotta, like try on the pair of shoes before you buy the pair of shoes. You know, or, you, know you just got to kind of try it out first. Well, the reality is if you take people who lived together before they were married and you compared that to people who didn't live together and then got married, the divorce rate of this group is twice as high as the divorce rate in this group. And I think it's maybe because they can't recover from some of the vulnerabilities and some of the pain and some of the wounds and some of the scars that happened when they were living in that marriage-type relationship without the safety of that commitment. Just something to think about. Maybe, you know, just an example of maybe there is something, like it's not just antiquated, it's not just, oh, it's just a piece of paper. Maybe there's something more to it, you know, like the, that God said from the very beginning, there's something special, something important, something, something holy about marriage. Paul goes on, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So so what Paul is saying here is basically in the same way that Jesus washes us and makes us more holy, we are in a marriage relationship to treat one another in such a way that holiness ensues, that we grow closer to God. And so husbands, let me ask you a question. Is your wife becoming more beautiful on the inside than when you first married her? Is she more spiritually mature? Is she more secure? Is she more emotionally healthy? Would you say that, that your wife is a better person, that she's more like Jesus, more healed up, more loving, and more secure as a result of the years that you've lived together? Have you had that kind of an effect on her? Or would you say, you know, in all honesty, my wife, she's more beaten down. She's more defeated, less joyful angrier, more discouraged. And like a question, like when you read what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5, you got to ask yourself the question, what responsibility do you have in this? And I'm not saying it's all your fault, but, but you've had something to do with that. And wives, in the same way, is your husband more holy, more secure, more full of integrity, you know, loving Jesus more, more confident because of your encouragement and your love? See, if you take a husband or you take a wife and you put them in an atmosphere of put-downs and neglects and emotional distance and coldness and manipulation, when somebody lives with constant criticism or withdrawal or abuse, that person can really shrivel up and die. And so there's all sorts... It just got really quiet in here. There, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of uh, commitments that we make in marriage. There's shared responsibilities. There's like figuring out, okay, you do this and I'll do this. But one of the most important uh, parts or aspects of, of a marriage relationship, one of the main roles and responsibilities is that we support each other's spiritual growth and spiritual encouragement. And if your marriage is an environment of love and respect and prayer of, and encouragement, and you really are centering your marriage on Jesus, there's, listen, there's, absolutely there's going to be bumpy roads because I just love that. It's like surgery without anesthesia. That's going to happen. But you're going to be, both of you are going to be growing closer to Jesus and you're going to be healed up. And, and finally, the purpose of your marriage is to point beyond itself to Christ and the church. The purpose of your marriage is to point beyond itself to Christ and the church. Now, all throughout this passage, 
Paul is repeatedly saying, you know, listen, I'm talking about marriage, but there's also this reality of Jesus in the church. You know, that there's, there's a comparison that's here. Ephesians 5.31 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Now, there's, there's so much that I could say about Jesus and the church and his bride, but let me just end by, by just talking for a moment about how marriage and the permanency of marriage focuses or points us to the unfailing love of God, the steadfast love of God. See, how do we know that God isn't just one day, one day he's just, you know, not going to get tired of us and just say, you know what, they've just, they keep messing up in the same ways. I'm just done with them. I just can't even with these people anymore. I'm just going to move on. How do we know that God is, is never going to leave us? He's never going to forsake us. There's so many ways that we know that. But one way is that he talks about marriage, and he talks clearly about the permanency of marriage, and how, you know, like, let what God has joined together, let no one tear apart, that it's, that it's something that's supposed to last for the long haul. And he says, this marriage is a reflection, is a sign of the kind of relationship that God has with his people. See, in another place, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that love never fails, right? Love never collapses. It never falls apart. It's never defeated. Everything else in life fails. I don't know if you know, the, the longer you live, you just realize that everything else fades. Like youth. Where'd that go? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that faded. Those of you who are young, listen, someday you'll be old like me, and you'll be like, where did that go? That was quick. Uh, beauty. That fades. Um, your career. You know, that, that like one day, you're somebody's going to replace you. One day, there'll be a retirement party for you, ministry. One day, there'll be someone else up on this stage or, or whatever our, our stage church situation is at some point. Our health fades. Everything fades. But the one thing that you can be sure of is that God's love is steadfast. God's love does not pass away. And marriage points to that. Marriage reminds us of that. Caspar uh, Olivian, a German theologian in the late 16th century, he's believed to have co-authored the Heidelberg Catechism. Towards the end of his life, he wrote this. He wrote, my hearing is gone, my smelling is gone, and my sight is going. My speech and my feeling are almost gone, but the loving kindness of God is the same and will never depart from me. And so I just want to say, just to end this here, I just want to say to all of us, to married people, not married people, divorced people, whatever your situation is, the unfailing steadfast love of God is what we need to build our life on. That, that, that if you, and this is what, you know, even like Romans 1, you know, every, I read it every single week and I don't, have a, I don't have a chance to like break down all the different elements of it. But one of the things that says is that once we turn our back on God, that, that not only will we, you know, thinking that we're wise become foolish, but we also will worship created things. And what that means is you're made to worship. Like, that's just in you. And you could, you know, if you say, I don't want to worship God, that doesn't mean you're not going to worship. You're going to end up worshiping something else. But what's going to happen is that you're going to worship something that's created. You're going to give all of your time, effort, energy, you know, energy, devotion to something created, something that can't sustain your worship.
something, you're going to try to build your life on a foundation that will not be able to support your life. And so what the, the big picture here for whatever your circumstance is, is build your life, build your foundation on this steadfast, unfailing love of God. Because if your life is built on the steadfast, unfailing love of God, then whatever happens in life, whatever else fails in life, whatever fades in life, the the steadfast, faithful love of God will only increase in your life. Not only for this life, but for all of eternity, we will plunge the depths of the riches of God's love. And so, so if you're married, get Jesus in the center of your marriage. Build your life on his foundation. If you're not married, if you're planning to get married, if you're brokenhearted because of divorce or because of loss or whatever it is, build your life on the steadfast, unchangeable, unfading love of God. And your, how, your life will be lived on a foundation, on a rock that will hold you up no matter what. Let's pray. Let's all, let's all stand. Lord, I just want to specifically pray for all the marriages that are in this room, that are online. And Lord, I just want to pray, God, for any marriage, Lord, that, is really, that's, that feels like it's failing right now, that's struggling right now. God, I want to pray in Jesus' name that you would just bring it, put through your spirit, God, an infusion of hope, an infusion of love, of life. And God, I just pray, Lord, I pray that you would just, just, Lord, even give us that clear vision. For those of us who are married, that clear vision that we have the unique privilege and opportunity to, to love someone as we love ourselves. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to love our spouse, to sacrifice, to lay our life down, to honor, Lord, the person that we made these crazy promises to so many years ago. Lord, I thank you, God. Just take a moment, those of you who are married. Thank God for your spouse. Thank God for them. And maybe, you know what, might be some of you, might be hard for you to do that for whatever, the, whatever it is that's going on. Even if you're mad at them, even if you're angry, even if they betrayed you. Just present your marriage to him. Lift up your marriage. Lift it up to him. And say, Lord, have your way. Lord, do, do your work in my marriage. God, do what only you can do. And I just wonder if there might be some people right now where you feel like there's no hope for your marriage. And listen, you know what? Marriage is permanent. Marriage is, you know, it, it's, it's this commitment. But the Bible does say that there are situations, whether it's abuse, whether it's infidelity, there are things um, that can change that. But it's, you know, but, but, but I, just, I just feel that, that there might be some people right now for whatever reason you're kind of giving up on your marriage. And maybe what God wants to do is he wants to breathe some new hope and some new life into your heart. And so just for whoever that is right now, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come. 
that you would give strength, that you would give hope, that you would give forgiveness, that you would bring life. And Lord, I just want to pray to you, God. I want to pray for those who, who were married and aren't now either because of uh, divorce or because of death. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort. I pray, Lord, that, that even though it's very, two very different situations, but still you're, you're the God of all situations. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just let them know that they can rely on your steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord never fails us. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that we would just be able to rely afresh on your steadfast love. Thank you, Lord. Bless your presence here. And just the last thing, you know, listen, God loves you. God created you to have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're whatever, you need a relationship with Jesus. And you don't have it, you're not born into a relationship with Jesus. You actually need to be born again to have a relationship with Jesus. And so if you want a relationship with Jesus, if you want to experience this steadfast love of God that we're talking about today, it starts by you just opening up your heart and inviting Jesus to come in. And so if you're ready to do that, whether you're in the room or whether you're watching on the live stream, just pray this prayer. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you in my life. I believe that you died on the cross in my place. And I ask that you forgive all of my sins. I accept your free gift of salvation. Please reveal your steadfast love to me. Teach me how to follow you. Because from here on out, I just say that you're, you're my Lord and I'm going to follow you. You're my boss. Just keep your eyes closed. But if you prayed that prayer, if you're in the room, just raise your hand if you prayed that prayer to accept Jesus. Okay, awesome. Awesome. I see a bunch of hands up. I'm going to ask you to do one other thing. All right, you can text FOLLOW to 201-584-7188. That'll give you a form. You can also use your QR code. Uh, if you're in the room, we got the codes on the back of the chairs. You can just use your phone like, you know, you get menus in restaurants. And then you can fill that out. And then somebody will get in touch with you this week and will say, how can we pray for you? Answer any questions you have, encourage you. I would just encourage you, if you made that commitment, it would be good for you to fill that out because it's good to, to be public about that. All right, we're going we're gonna to close. We're going to have some people from the prayer ministry team. They're going to be over here. If you need prayer, I just felt even while I was praying at the end here, it felt like God was kind of active and moving and doing some stuff. And so if you're married and God's been stirring some stuff up, get some prayer. If you're, you know, uh, in a situation, maybe you're not married, but this has been a painful thing for whatever reason, get some prayer. If you're planning on getting married, get some prayer. If you're struggling with the fact that you're not married, get some prayer. Whatever it is, whatever you need prayer for, just keep your mask on. It'll be socially distanced. We'd love to have the opportunity to pray for you. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. And uh, I'll see you next week.